Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Welcome to our second episode in our three non-Bond cycle for this season. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I'm joined by my brothers in arms against no, my brothers in ar- my my brothers in Bond against my brothers in Bond across the pond. <laughs> Joshua, wow, Taylor, Try and that Jeffrey Chapman. three times fast. <laughs> Well, I couldn't do it once. We couldn't even do it once, so if you could do it three times fast, we'll send you something. That's a tongue twister for the ages. Mm. It is indeed. Nice to see you guys. Nice to see you. And thanks for coming on board this journey with me. Yeah, just leave that in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) All aboard. Yes, it is. All aboard. So we have our second of our third non-bonds today. We do. And we are going to look at John Frankenheimer's The Train from 1964. This was my selection, guys. And um, I, you know, uh, I'm really excited to hear what you thought of it. Uh, I'm excited to share what I thought of it as well, because I'd never seen this film before. Oh, uh, really? Oh, okay. Wow. I've never seen it. Because no. we, thought, we thought you just decided to be all fancy and pick it like, oh, by the way, just pull mm-hmm. this out of your fancy you know, smoking jacket and be like, by the way, guys, mm-hmm. I got the train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope. Oh, you've never seen it. That's even cooler. Okay, great. No, I'm going to tell you the story of why I picked it in a few minutes. But uh, before mm-hmm. we do that, just to welcome everybody on board, the Good Train Bond by Numbers for this episode. <laughs> we hope you guys uh, are doing well out there in uh, yeah, wherever you're listening to us from and uh, that you enjoy the show. So... Guys, it's been a bit of a month, I guess, since our recording. Josh and I have had a small episode on John Gardner's Icebreaker since, Jeff, your your film on The Born Identity. And Correct. in that time, some things have happened in the Bond world. Obviously, yeah. we've had the uh, the proper celebrations for Bond at 60 have taken place in London and Correct. around the world. James Bond Day has happened, of course, uh, something to which mm-hmm. our listeners will be well aware of online following uh, the trends. And we've also had the passing of a couple of notable figures within the Bond world. Um, most recently, uh, Robbie Coltrane passed away just yesterday. We're recording this on Saturday, the 15th of October. And before that, of course, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, who uh, does have uh, quite a tenured link with the Bond world. Josh? Yeah, uh, Queen Elizabeth is a big one. This is a figure that's been around in our lives for quite a long time. And her passing is just kind of like it's almost the end of an era in a way. And just to cement that, and she has nothing to do with, you know, with the Bond series in general, but with the John Frankenheimer connection, I will say that, you know, also Angela Lansbury passed away. And that was also a person, right, yep. well, part of my growing up in childhood as well. So that's, yeah, and, yeah. and the same age as the Queen too. So yeah, yeah that's, right. that's quite a, a milestone in its own way. But obviously for Bond, the Queen is a, is a huge thing. You know, she was now the longest reigning monarch, uh, you know, up to, passed away on her 96th birthday like that's you know she outlived victoria and elizabeth the first you know so that's quite an accomplishment mm-hmm. and um she, she came to the crown in the post post world war ii so besides the cold war she's generally like been a, a queen of peace in a way despite you know like mm-hmm. the strife in her own family and all the stuff going on there mm-hmm. um you know she's always been that kind of solid rock of like of old tradition and um, hanging on, you know, going all the way through the decades up until now. And now it just seems like with her passing, it's like we're in a whole new frontier. We have an English king. We have an English king now. Like this is a think of me, someone who loves English history, reading about all the kings of England and stuff like that. And even though, you know, like I loved, I loved Elizabeth and, uh, and, and everything, I'm just amazed that we're now living in a reign where there's going to be where there's actually a king of England. It almost feels like time traveling to the 1940s or something like that with King George <clears throat> or something like it's 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 just bizarre to think about it. 
and right. even more striking about the whole situation is that um, even when Ian Fleming was writing James Bond, Elizabeth was queen. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Well, you no. Know, when did George? Well, when did George the Sixth die? Was it like fifty-two? Yeah, she was nineteen fifty-three. Was uh, Casino Royale? Well, so she, she was. She, co- the, the coronation was fifty-three. I think he died yeah. in fifty-two. Fifty-two. Because I remember. I don't. I don't know if this no, is the, the coron. Cor- no, the coronation, coronation was like a year no, afterwards. She, the coronation wasn't fifty. Was in fifty-two. Right. That was a coronation. Oh. That's okay. right. Because she celebrated her Diamond Jubilee this year. You're right. You're right. right. Okay. So yeah, Fleming sorry, has yeah, been right. writing James Bond since the whole she was time, the yeah. whole since yeah. she was queen the whole time. It's always been on Her That's Majesty's incredible. Secret Service. You know? That's right. That's pretty amazing. And now now New Frontier indeed on His Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. And going into that, uh from what I've got, what we're getting from Eon is that they want a fifteen year tenure for mm. the next Bond actor. They want to get someone who's relatively young. Uh, who can hold, you know, who can hold the fort for at least 15 years because they want to get at least maybe five or six films out of them, right? So that's right. Yeah. See how that goes. So that really like kind that of I, throws a like idea but... in some casting, you know, like I don't think you're going to see Idris Elba mm-hmm. well, st- at this point. I, I don't think you're going to no, see Tom no, Hardy. Not, yeah. uh, you know what I mean? Because yeah. Connery was, mm-hmm. was only 31 when he was cast as Bond. So that's right. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, Dalton, I think was 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 one of the older ones. I think he was was like in his forties when he was casted, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you was know, he that old when he was cast? I think so. Yeah, because he was a young man when he was being considered for like back in the late sixties. He was a consideration for Bond. Mm-hmm. He was, yeah, yeah. So well, he, was, he was a consideration for, for post Connery. I mean, he was in the post Connery. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Check out our episode on uh, Majesties, and that'll explain that mm-hmm. context. But it's yeah. not fresh in my mind right now. No, definitely not. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. You know, they're going to probably go for maybe a Bond, maybe in the late twenties, early thirties, and kind of, you know, groom him in that direction so that, that they can use him for for a good yeah. amount of time. So I think that will be interesting. Curious to see who they pick and what kind of direction they go with Bond. Uh, personally, and this might be a hot take, but I would love to see like a retro Bond. Like that would be my view. I think that would be really cool. I think now, because, you know, our relations with Russia aren't that great, uh, a little Cold War wouldn't hurt, you know, bringing that back into it. Um, yeah. Hmm. That's my Don't take. Don't know would help. But, but I, I just mm-hmm. hope they come yeah. up with something that's really interesting and different, but at the same time captures the feel of Bond. I think, you know, five movies with Daniel well, Craig, think... uh, you know, method acting and stuff like that, as, as good as some of it was, it got to the point where even Craig was, you know, rough around the edges by the end of it, so... I mean, Craig has always been rough well, around the edges. I'm we're talking about like just the uh, his run got a little haggard towards the end, and a little bit. Um, it just seemed a lot longer than it should have been, I suppose. And especially when you didn't have like mm-hmm. a, a movie every two years, like you had with the Roger Moore reign, right? So, yeah, I think that was well. The thing I think that made him uh, tough, yeah. in relation to the new Bond and and sort of where they want to go, it, it's always going to be sort of like what's the best recipe here, like. How are they going to sort of revitalize and either make it relevant uh, to a younger audience, keep the base of the the older audience, and just see what they could do to either rehash but make it fresh, but maybe make it nostalgic at the same time? It's it's tough, but you know I got faith in them. They know what they're doing, and uh, Mm -hmm. you know have a nice balance in there to try and Mm -hmm. and uh, appease all the different types of fans in the age range and and. you know the fanboys and the you know, history buffs and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's a, it's a tough task, but I know they're up for it, and I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah, 
uh, you know, it's, it, Bond is in a new world now. You know, this is the post Me Too world. This is uh, a whole different way of bringing Bond back to to his origins, but at the same time, starting something new. And cha- are we, are, can you keep going with is James Bond a character that can adapt to each decade? So far, it's proven that he can, but it, it gets to a certain point though where society advances so much in the sense going where like almost any of Bond's kind of behavior or picadillos wouldn't wouldn't just be acceptable in society, right? But I think the Craig era helped show that sensitive side of things, if anything, despite some people might finding that a detriment to the character. I think in a way that was a positive way. And um, despite, you know, what I feel about, what we might feel about certain parts of like the writing of No Time to Die, I think someone like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, you know, writing for Bond, a woman writing for Bond, I think that makes a big uh, that will make a big difference in terms of maybe balancing things out. Yeah, I agree. And speaking of women writing for Bond, mm-hmm. uh, Kim Sherwood's Kim Sherwood's Double or Nothing book, uh, which I've just started reading, has been out now for a, a little while, but uh, finally getting around to reading it, and I'll have a review for everybody shortly. Uh, it's getting really good reviews critically. I haven't read any spoiling reviews because I want to keep the book fresh for myself, but uh, so far it's early early days for me, but it's it's going really really well. Um, and an interesting figure, Kim Sherwood. Um, I must admit, I knew very little of her as a writer until the Bond news broke. I looked into it. And of course, she's just up the road in Edinburgh teaching creative writing up at the University of Edinburgh. And uh, she's, she seems to be a really, really fascinating and uh, hardworking creative type. So I think it's great. It's fantastic. We've got uh, a female pen in there at, at uh, yeah. long last. So mm-hmm. I'm really, really liking where she's um, started with this story. And like I said, I'm literally 10 pages into it. But I'll, uh, I'll report back and uh, have more to share. Right. Hopefully. So who's strangling the cat? <laughs> um, let's jump into it now. Um, R.I.P. Robbie Coltrane. Fantastic uh, Scottish actor just passed away yesterday. And, oh, he was Scottish. Uh, yeah, he was great. Lama of the Bond. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. I remember before I saw him, and even before he was Hagrid, even before I saw him in Goldeneye, I remember there was oh. a comedy that that uh, I saw. I was a bit too young to watch it, I think, at the time. My aunt and uncle were watching it or, or something. Uh, it was called Nuns on the Run. And it was Robbie Coltrane oh, and another guy. I forget who the other guy was, mm. but they were like two-bit gangsters hiding out in a nunnery or something like that. I guess it was part of the whole. It was like it was like your, it was the Brit version of Sister Act, I suppose. I guess that's what that's they were going what for. I was say it sounds like, that, yeah. but um, I remember Robbie Coltrane from that because that's how I recognized him when I watched, when I saw Goldeneye for mm. the first time as uh, Zukowski, as Valentin Zukowski, uh, who was only in two cool. Bond movies, two of the Brosnan films, but he definitely left an impression. I was really sad yeah, when sure they did. killed him off in World Is Not Enough. Uh, like. Mm-hmm. Even though he had a good scene in the end, like I just felt like spoiler. <laughs> yes, it's a spoiler, Jeff, for this the entire series that we've been talking about. You know, twenty four <laughs> five 20, years yeah. for five years. Yeah, absolutely. Well. I'm sorry if you haven't seen a James Bond movie and that particular <laughs> Bond film, and you've grown into this podcast. And you I'm choose not, to listen to this I'm not podcast this episode. I'm not apologizing. It's your own fault. <laughs> yeah, you got to think about what you're doing with your life if you're coming to this podcast so late, and this, and you know, and, and you're spoiled by yeah. Valentin Zukowski's death in The World Is Not Enough. I'm sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yes, but you're absolutely right. He's uh, he's a great figure in the in the films and a great talent, and a really interesting figure as well uh, in terms of his philanthropic work. He did a lot for charity. He did a lot for noble causes. He did a lot for the LGBT community. Um, what does Rowling uh, think of that? Oh gosh, I don't know. 
she did tweet something about him, you know, that she really liked him as a person. And um, well, g- given we as, did. yeah, well, given as a philanthropy thing too, like he was also apparently like a real good friend to like the young kids on the set of Harry Potter. Cause I saw like tweets from like Watson Radcliffe. Uh, mm-hmm. What's his name? Uh, the guy that played Mel- uh, Malfoy. I forget his name now. Uh, oh yes. I know. You. Tom, uh, is it a Tom Felton? Tom Felton, Felton? Tom Felton. Yeah. The guy who's go, in, yeah. yeah. And also like uh, Bonnie Wright and the two Weasley brothers who have like mm-hmm. that travelogue show mm-hmm. on HBO now. Uh, fantastic friends and where to find them. It's actually a pretty fun show. I watched like one episode or two. Uh, that of sounds it. pretty cool. Yeah. Like the first episode, they go to St. Lucia and they're hanging with like um, uh, Maisie Williams. And uh, the next episode, they hang with other friends of theirs. Like each episode, they go to a different destination. It's pretty cool. Uh, cool. But anyways, yeah. So every, all the kids are saying how he was just like a great uncle on the set. And, you know, like he, he always told stories and he was a fun guy. Like he was a big guy, but he was also, you know, like a lovable guy too. J- j- just like Hagrid. So there you go. Basically, yeah. That's yeah. what it sounds like. <laughs> You're a wizard, Harry. Just a good person, you know, just yeah. a good person who also happened to be a celebrity. You know, there's lots of them out there. <laughs> we forget yeah. that sometimes, but there are lots of yeah. good, good people who are, who are celebrities. Roger Moore, you know, that's uh Mm-hmm. I mean, it's true that it's nice. It's refreshing when you hear about people where you think they're one way and then you're actually right. They're actually, they seem to be exactly who they are in front and yeah. behind the camera, which is refreshing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robbie Coltrane, I mean, I, I didn't know too much about him, but from the little I knew from hearing interviews here and there over the last, you know, 30 years or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and he seems like that kind of person. And, and so it's nice to know that he was like that. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. sad to see him passing. Well, anyways, we're yeah. just trying to give him a little bit of lip service today, a positive lip service. And yeah, so. That's it. Okay. Well, yeah. guys, uh, with that said, let's transition into uh, our main feature. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is our discussion of John Frankenheimer's 1964 mm-hmm. film, The Train. So once again, everyone, thanks for joining us here on our second Three Non-Bonds adventure. We hope you have a good ride along with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was uh, quite a pick, Scott. I have to say, I'm not going to really reveal my feelings about the about the uh, film yet, but mm. I have to say, this yep. was quite a pick. This, I think, I think this is up there with um, Jeff selecting um, Quiller, the Quiller Memorandum. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, can yeah. I can I say, guys, that the reason I did this the way I did it because last year I chose Torn Curtain. The first time we did right. this, the year before that, I chose the Iger Sanction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I wanted because we had such a good time with the Quiller Memorandum, and it was such a wonderful surprise. For Jeff as well, because he hadn't seen it. I think. Yeah, you know, I just it was like throwing I, a dart at a dartboard. Yeah, I wanted to do something no, similar. Happy. I wanted to do something similar. So, the reason I selected this film, bit of a story. It's not a long story, but I'll just tell it to you. Okay, so I really wanted to select something different that I hadn't seen and which I thought could bring a bit, you know, a bit of something different to our three non-bonds. I now I know that the train is not technically a spy film. It's still. It is, though, still involved in, in capital I intelligence, right? It is yes, very much yeah, very affiliated. Much so, sure. It's affiliated with mm-hmm. the Fleming and the wartime stories. Well, so, yeah. now, wartime I knew espionage. Of this film, war, thank you, wartime espionage. Now, I knew of the train only vaguely through my Hemingway reading, believe it or not. Oh. So if you try to follow, try to follow these degrees of separation, mm-hmm. okay? So Hemingway, Paris in the 1920s, 
me teaching the short stories in our time and the memoir of Hemingway's time in Paris, A Movable Feast, that led me into extra research on Gertrude Stein, who was a chief influence of of Hemingway during that time. He was, and of course, she herself was a huge patron of the arts. Forget her. she was in Paris in the twenties with him too, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, she yeah. had uh, she had the uh, the gallery, but forget That's her right. own influence as a, a figure of American letters. Um, that led me to read her autobiography, which is called The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, who was her life partner. And within that, there was recommended reading. One book within that text, which was recommended, was Rose Valland's La France de l'Art, which, of course, was the novel that inspired the creation of this film, The Train. But it was the story of Train 40044 uh, uh, that led me to the historical research for this film ah, which then okay, took off from sense. there yep. so but what's interesting guys is it comes full circle back to Hemingway so check this out right he was present during the liberation of Paris there's a well-told and oh. pretty tired tale of Hemingway riding a jeep through the streets of Paris on August whatever of 1944 and straight into the bar of the Ritz Hotel where he like you know he like starts picking off Nazis between gulps of red wine and like ah, you know. now listen listen <laughs> There's, that's hyperbolic and partly apocryphal, mm. but there is more than a little truth to the broad strokes of that narrative. In her memoir uh, from 1959 called Shakespeare and Company, the famous bookstore manageress Sylvia Beach uh, gives her version of Hemingway in The Liberation. Now, Beach, you might know, guys, operated the bookshop in the lending library of uh, Shakespeare and Company and was nearly as famous as the people who frequented the spot and befriended her during the first half of the 20th century. We've got like Picasso, Joyce, Fitzgerald was there, Sherwood Anderson, Gertrude Stein. Um, oh, anyway, and Hemingway, of course, right? I mean, just to name a few. Mm-hmm, but here's mm-hmm. what she had to say. Here's what she had to say about Hemingway during the liberation of Paris, which of course leads into and connects with our story here. There was still a lot of shooting going on in the Rue de Lodian, and we were getting tired of it when one day a string of jeeps came up the street and stopped in front of my house. I heard a deep voice calling, Sylvia, and everyone in the street took up the cry of, Sylvia, Sylvia. It's Hemingway, it's Hemingway, cried Adrian. I flew downstairs. We met with a crash. He picked me up and swung me around and kissed me while people on the street and in the windows cheered. We went up to Adrian's apartment and sat Hemingway down. He was in battle dress, grimy and bloody. A machine gun clanked on the floor. He asked Adrian for a piece of soap, and she gave him her last cake. He wanted to know if there was anything he could do for us. We asked him if he could do something about the Nazi snipers on the rooftops in our street, particularly on Adrian's rooftop. He got his company out of the jeeps and took them up onto the roof. We heard firing for the last time in the Rue de Lodian. Hemingway and his men came down again and rode off in their jeeps to liberate, he said, the cellar at the Ritz Hotel. Wow. So, I mean, you know, she was there. That's what she said happened. And, uh, you know... That's a pretty so, cool story how it all comes back with, to the like, liberation of Paris. So he was in, I didn't know he was in France at that time. He, oh, yeah. he must have oh, came yeah. with, with, the Amer- with the Amer- with the Allies at, after Normandy and yeah. then just followed them up all the way to, all the way to Paris, like in August, basically. Interesting. I, I'll be honest with you. I really don't know much about his military service during World War II. I knew what he did uh, in the in the First World War. Ambulance driver. Uh, well, he wasn't and, allowed and, to and be in the, there. And he in the Spanish Civil there. War. I, I, I didn't know. Interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, 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 pretty cool. But by that he time, I mean, he could get himself anywhere he wanted to go. Yeah. Well, yeah. Speaking I mean, of Papa. Sure, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, as Robert Frost would say, you know, way leads on to way. And it wasn't long before all of these historical nuggets of literature and art and history and war and seminal figures, you know, that all put me on a path with Frankenheimer's story, The Train. So uh, I know that was a roundabout way of getting there. But most important in this story, no, like of course, it. guys is the real-life figure of Rose Vallant. And I don't think it would be appropriate for us to talk about this film without at least tipping our hat to the memory of Rose and the mm. work that she did. So mm. Rose Antonia Maria Vallant, just a little mention on her. A French art historian and curator of Galerie Nationale Jeux de Palme, or the tennis court in uh, Paris during World War II. She was a member of the French Resistance and was instrumental in preserving some of France's greatest masterpieces. Between 1940 and 1944, during the Nazi occupation of Paris, her museum was used for storing Nazi plunder. Valan kept secret lists of the artwork coming in and out of the gallery so that it could be traced to properties across Western Europe. After the end of the war, her lists enabled for the safe return to rightful owners of a great percentage of this plunder. Over 20,000 pieces of art were traced through the gallery during those four years of occupation. And all the while, Valan hid from the Nazis the fact that she understood German. She regularly risked her life by informing the French resistance of railroad shipments of art so that they wouldn't mistakenly blow up trains loaded with priceless valuables. Valand was personally there when, on the 3rd of May 1941, Reichsmarschall Hermann Göring visited the gallery to select some of the stolen art for his personal collection. He and the Führer were to half the plunder. Well, the story of Train 40044 is much of what our film today is based upon, and a little background, definitely worth sharing here as well. On the 1st of August, with the Germans retreating and the Allies pushing into Paris, Nazi General Heinrich Baron von Baird decided to load up as much of the art from the gallery as possible and get it moving via rail to Germany. The next day, 148 crates, which housed over 960 paintings, reached the station of Aubervilliers, just outside of Paris. Valand was able to get uh, the itinerary of holdings to Jacques Joujard, who was a senior civil servant in the arts and a very big player in the French resistance, along with the train and goods wagon numbers. Delays, disruptions, and some legitimate uh, resistance, all of that ensured that the train never got to its destination. Either Kogel Castle at uh, St. Gorgen uh, in Austria and the Nikolsburg Depository in Moravia, where the spots where those trains were heading. So Rose Valland worked operations like this throughout the war, some small, some singular, others more connected, but she succeeded in keeping the Nazis from taking most of what they were after, thanks to bookkeeping, courage, and nationalism. And for her services, she was awarded the Legion of Honor, a commander of the Order of Arts and Letters, the Medaille de Résistance, Officer's Cross of the Order of Merit, and the Medal of Freedom. And her book from 1961, Le Front de l'Art, was published a memoir of her time in Paris preserving art in the tensions of Nazi occupation. Our film today is based loosely on the book and of her stories. In the movie, Miss Villard, played by Suzanne Flan, is the character representing Rose Vallant, who brings the news of the art train's departure to La Biche, which of course motivates a lot of our plot. So that's just a little bit on the background, well, uh, which, I, which I thought was pretty cool. Pretty cool. Oh, it is. Yeah, definitely. Very cool. I definitely want to see her medals. <laughs> that list is- I know. I was looking at Jeff's face. Yeah. Like, oh, this, like, this is the metal guy. So I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Stars in his eyes. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. Now, guys, I hope you're okay with this. And I hope our listeners are okay with this as well. 
I'm not going to lay out tons of production notes here in detail, okay? I just want to give some basic info and broad strokes. There's lots of info about this online, and of course, the Blu-rays and DVDs have got great director commentary where Frankenheimer talks his way through things. Plus, I know through our review, we're going to share some of this information anyway, and I don't want mm-hmm. to stretch it on too long. So no, of I'll just keep it real quick. Uh, yeah. Burt Lancaster, who's the star of the film, he fired director Arthur Penn, who was wanting the story to involve more about the role of art on Labiche's character. Frankenheimer came on board, uh, see what I did there, who shared more of the action star's vision of action for the movie. He also used the troubled start of production to his advantage, negotiating a Ferrari and his own name into the title of the film. So I think. Uh, yeah, yeah John Frankenheimer's The Train. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Our episode. Yeah, some interesting stories, Frankenheimer. As a young man, he was a screenwriter in Hollywood, and then he eventually worked his way up, you know, doing TV, and then mm-hmm, eventually, mm-hmm. in the 60s, he got into into feature films, which is a pretty big climb, you know, because I think yeah. this was about a year or two after The Manchurian Candidate, I believe. That's right. Two years after The Manchurian Candidate. And our episode from June of 2020, where we looked at Ronan for our first three non mm-hmm. season, we go into a really good dive on Frankenheimer's career there. So if anybody wants to know more about the director, yeah, that's right. go back to that episode and check it out because Josh laid out a lot of info there. Um, but this was his seventh feature film. He was still a relatively young man, but this was his seventh feature film and was coming on the back of Seven Days in May, The Birdman of Alcatraz, and The mm-hmm. Manchurian Candidate. And mm-hmm. in three of those films, um, or in two of those films, Burt Lancaster Bert- starred... I think he produced them as well, didn't he, Burke Lancaster? I'm not entirely sure, but I know that uh, they were. He produced the train. Yeah, I know. I know he produced the train because he he started up his own production company like in the mid '50s, sort of, and and Mm -hmm. and the the train was like one of his one of his babies. So Mm -hmm. that's why he starred in the train, right? And um, we can discuss, Mm -hmm. you know, Lancaster's presence in the film. But speaking of Lancaster, when you're talking about the connection of Hemingway. And uh, the train. I was wondering if you were yeah. if you're making the connection with Burt Lancaster because you know Burt Lancaster starred in the adaptation of The Killers. So yes, I do. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I thought maybe that that was the Kevin Bacon mm-hmm. thing that you were doing there. But anyways, oh, no, no, no. It was more interesting uh, than that, I reckon. But anyway, I'm sure. Oh, it, um, and it was, by the way, it was much much more interesting than that frivolity <laughs> that I just mentioned. Yeah, <laughs> that's not frivolous. It's it's cool, you know. I mean, Lancaster Seven was kind of a Kevin Bacon is. guy. Oh, there's seven degrees now? I yeah. guess that makes sense. Seven, He's yeah. older now, seven so there's years. probably another degree. Exactly. But <laughs> you gain one every decade. You, you gain one every decade, yeah. The game just gets more exciting. It, ex- well, it expands oh, on itself as it goes. If I can just plug Kevin Bacon, he's on this new show called City on the Hill. Wow. The, I just, yeah? If people like, wow. If you're just used to Kevin Bacon, you know, dancing in a little town that doesn't like music or, or mm. you know, going to uh, Crystal Lake you know, getting stabbed mm. or big watch worms. The, in the desert. Watch the, watch the, um, the well-aged uh, <laughs> Kevin Bacon is sitting on the Hill. It's a great show. Anyway, sorry. Cool. Underrated Good bacon plug. performance. Just plug in it right now. Underrated bacon performance would be uh, Apollo 13. He was really good in that oh, movie. I saw that true. movie again for the first time a couple of months ago. And man, I guess as a kid, I didn't appreciate it very much, but watching it like awesome. recently, it's an amazing film. I love it so oh, it's much. Really like, it's so it's good. It's theaters. It's so really I, good. Uh, uh, back, mm-hmm. back to Frankenheimer here. He had uh, first directed um, 
Lancaster in 1961's The Young Savages. So, you know, three times they'd worked together. I think bringing this young director on board meant stability for Lancaster, comfort for him, whose reputation was really driving the production. And as you said, the production company involvement there as well. Mm-hmm. The movie was budgeted for about six and a half, seven million dollars in that territory. Lots of real dynamite, entirely real trains were used to help accomplish that sense of verisimilitude, which we know Frankenheimer, particularly in his later films, really, really was going for. Um, The entire film was shot on location in France, with the exception of a few studio shots and sets built in Boulogne, Billancourt. Um, But yeah, you've got real railway sites like Rue de la Gare and Molyneux. Now, I mean, Wikipedia and the History Channel both feature an interview that Frankenheimer did about the film. Um, and as I said at the outset here, guys, there's lots of stuff you can fetch online about this. So you can check that out if you want to read it, mm. um, share some cool information on the film. But instead of going through all of that, I just encourage listeners to go do some research themselves. If you like the movie yeah. and you want to learn more, go check it out. You know, um, yeah. this isn't Cubby's Corner as such. This is kind no. of it's nothing, actually, because it's just a bit of information. So fuck all that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> The movie, the movie premiered in France, guys, on the 24th of September, in the 29th of October in the UK, and months later in March of 65 in the USA. Mm. It did recoup its budget, but not by an enormous amount. Uh, received warm reviews for the most part, competing against Goldfinger, Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady, Marnie, and three huh. Elvis films. Three Elvis mm. films in one year. Wow, that's, Viva Las Vegas, Roustabout. Big Can't company. The other one, but, right. That's, cr- that's uh, a last huge, little point. That's a crazy year, 64. Wow. Yeah. I know. Mm. Uh, last little point and more movies too but just check this out right so the original screenplay written by Franklin Cohen and Frank Davis was nominated for an Oscar but it lost out to Frederick Raphael's Darling which was a John Schlesinger film curiously mm. composer Maurice Jarre did win an Oscar that night but it was for Dr. Zhivago and not for the train hmm. also ah. coincidentally that same Oscar ceremony saw John Steers and his team win for Thunderball's visual effects so we got a little ah. bit of good old John Steers <laughs> And John Steers, cool. of course, would uh, he'd win again twelve years later for a little film called Star Wars. And uh, yeah. That's oh right. yeah, that one. Just yep. that, just that little one, that indie one. You know, that little indie film. You might have heard. Uh, of it. Was it that space western or something like that? Or yeah, something exactly. Like that. Yeah. I don't think it really caught on afterwards, though. It was like, like, it was like this one planet that had like two suns. Like I don't know, it's dumb. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. That's it, boys. Uh, that's uh, some production information and uh, some little inspiration on why I went for this one. But uh, Josh has kindly prepared for us and our listeners a summary of action in the story. Uh, So before we get into our review proper, where we will look through the story and the acting and the atmosphere, as we always do, over to you, Josh, and uh, tell the good folks at home all about the train. All right. So just before we continue, beyond this point, here there be spoilers. Colonel Franz von Waldheim of the German army arrives in a staff car at the Jutepam Museum, intent on removing the famous paintings he has hoarded there under the supervision of the curator, Mademoiselle Villard. After a brief talk shop on the nature of art appreciation, he orders a retinue of soldiers under his command into the museum to box up all the paintings. It's the 2nd of August, 1944, and the Allies are on their way to Paris. He is, lo- he is, loading- he is going to load up all the artworks onto a train. Mademoiselle Viad is pressed to meet members of the French resistance, a specific cell of railway workers and engineers dealing with the sabotage of German transport. 
On a houseboat just some distance from the Varys rail yard outside of Paris, she employs Spinet, a high-ranking member of the Resistance, as well as two other rebels named Didon and Pasquet, as well as the recently arrived Paul Labiche, who is the site operator for French National Railway, or SCNF. She doesn't want the train destroyed. She wants it either captured or delayed as much as possible until the Allies arrive. It's the national pride of France, these paintings. Such a tactic would take up considerable manpower and lives. Labiche refuses to seize the train from the Germans and his vote holds weight in the meeting. They will focus instead on blowing up an armaments train. Little does uh, Mademoiselle Viard know that the art train has already been delayed by the Wehrmacht itself, but not, but not for long because von Waldheim impresses upon his commanding officer that the paintings are worth millions and are very valuable to Germany. Labiche, working his day job, assigns the art train to the cantankerous old engineer Papa Boulle, a fellow Frenchman explains to Bull of its more than worthwhile cargo, and the patriot within Bull is stirred. While Labiche from the watchtower monitors the situation of sabotaging the armaments train at Very Station, Papa Bull drives the lo- locomotive through the bombing of the train yard all the way to the next stop, a Paris suburb called Rivrain, where he has sabotaged its oil line, preventing it from moving further. The Germans catch on. The locomotive is brought back to Very Station, where von Waldheim's fearless Captain Heron reveals the sabotage, and despite Labiche's pleas and Boulle's cursing Labiche for his cowardice, Boulle is executed. Von Waldheim informs Labiche he is to take Papa Boulle's place. Labiche, working alongside Didon and Pesquet, is able to repair the oil line for the locomotive and are ordered to drive the locomotive to Rivrienne so the precious cargo and the cars in the town's train yard can be connected. With Pesquet and Didon accompanying him, Labiche drives from the train to Rivrain. There is a sorry, Labiche drives the train to Rivrain. There is a very close call with a Spitfire that they barely escape, thanks to a fortuitous tunnel. Here, von Waldheim and his staff are waiting, and the colonel orders Labiche to drive the air train all the way to Germany. Escorted by Schmidt, one of von Waldheim's lackeys, Labiche is quartered in a nearby inn. Christine, the manager of the inn, puts him up for the evening, but Labiche only has a few hours of rest before he leaves for Germany. Pesquet maneuvers around Rivrain on his bicycle, sticking to Labiche's plan that they have to contact Maurice, the resistance cell leader, as soon as possible. While in his room at the inn, Labiche escapes through the window and makes his way to the train station where he and resistance cell member Jacques, who is also the station manager, kill Pesquet's German babysitter and bound up Jacques to make it look like a kidnapping. Meanwhile, Pasquet has set fire to a troop transport that causes a whole manner of chaos, a perfect distraction for Labiche to phone Maurice, the resistance commander, from Jacques' office and make all the arrangements that we are about to see unfold. Labiche barely makes it back to the inn in time. Christine reluctantly helps him, maintains his cover with the Germans. When Labiche is exonerated in their eyes, von Waldheim spares Jacques and assigns a new chaperone for the station. Labiche has his rest and is escorted by Schmidt to the train. Labiche has Dedon and his co-engineer, Wells Pasquet, works the coming subterfuge with the rest of the cell. Von Waldheim assigns another officer, Schatz, to watch over the engineers as they bring the train to Germany. Through a series of ruses, namely the replacement of train station signs by resistance cell members working in coordination with Labiche under Maurice, the Germans are led to believe the train is on its way to Germany. Even Schmidt and his escort detachment in the train cars believe this is so. Back in Rivrain, Jacques arranges through coded dialogue about cheese, thanks to the visit from his nephew, over the phone in front of his German minder to have another locomotive brought into the train yard. Meanwhile, Pesquet operates his own locomotive falling behind the art train. Jacques then orders the engineer of the locomotive in Rivrain train yard to derail it. 
Cue the Labiche and Didant, who overtake Schatz and throw him clear from the train. The train is not going to Germany, but back to Paris. Next stop, Rivrain. Labiche and Didant detach the locomotive from the other cars and jump ship. Labiche is shot as he scrambles across the bridge from a German sniper on the train. He is winged and limps on. The locomotive barrels straight into the Rivrain train yard and crashes into the one already derailed. With the momentum it was already attached to, the train cars roar into the train yard. That's when Pesquet, in the following train, comes in. He is full steam ahead with his locomotive and also bails at the right moment. The third locomotive comes careening into the yard and collides full speed into the caboose of the art train. In an explosion of ripped wood and twisted metal, the art train is disabled and back to where it started. To von Waldheim's utter fury, Jacques and his engineer are put up against the wall and machine gunned. Pesquet is shot and killed. Dudon heads for the rendezvous point, an old farmhouse, whilst Labiche limps around Rivrain. He returns to the inn where he is reluctantly hidden by Christine in her cellar. She manages to shoo the Germans away and bonds with Labiche by giving him a meal. She is a widow who lost her husband early in the war, but feels the shame of cooperating with the occupying force. It's a very gray area. She lets Labiche know the coast is clear from German patrols, and Labiche reaches the old farmhouse and settles in with Didon. Spinet, Maurice's lieutenant, arrives along with Jacques' nephew, Robert. The new directive is this, to paint the top of the three cars white, so that the Allies do not bomb the train once it's on its way to Germany. Labiche protests, but goes along with the scheme anyway. In the chaos of the fast-moving repairs, Robert's climb, Robert climbs the top of the train station roof and triggers the air raid alarm. With paint and ladders supplied by Robert's friends in a nearby town, Labiche and Didant, with other resistance agents, climb atop the cars and apply the paint. Unfortunately, von Waldheim spots Robert thanks to a loose shingle, and the young man is shot dead. The Germans rush to the train yard. A shootout ensues with Dedant dead and Labiche escaping. In the early light of day, von Waldheim orders the French labor crew to scrape the white paint off the cars. As if in answer, Allied bombers suddenly appear, diving right over the Rivrain train yard without dropping any ordnance on the train. Von Waldheim realizes that the Allies will now not touch the train all the way to Germany. The train steams forth to Germany, but Labiche follows its progress outside of Rivrain. He sets up dynamite and a detonator. The charges explode and take out a section of track, delaying the train yet again. This time, Waldheim has a human shield along the front rails of the locomotive, a dozen civilians, probably laborers. This is why Labiche has to take out the track and not the train itself. Limping along, Labiche ascends to a high hill overlooking the tracks carrying along the bend of the river and reaching its apex, rolls down the other side for a long distance. At the bottom of the other side of the hill, he accesses tools from the utility shed on the side of the tracks. He then uh, unscrews the rails as fast as he can. The train derails again, but this time off the track and into a small ravine next to the river. A furious von Waldheim reaches the road next to the track and waves down an oncoming German transport caravan. There is a French armor column at the rear, and the commanding officer tells him that he refuses to get his men out of the, out of the transports to load up the paintings from the train. Von Waldheim orders Captain Heron to shoot the officer, but Heron refuses. Defeated, von Waldheim decides to stay with the train, but not before executing his civilian hostages. Still limping, Labiche reaches the front of the train to find the bullet-riddled bodies of his countrymen. He is confronted by a lone von Waldheim, who looks down upon him contemptuously for not knowing why he is doing what he is doing, that the art has no value to a beast like him. With a single glance at the dead, he empties his submachine gun into Colonel von Waldheim. Labiche ascends to the road and proceeds to limp onwards, leaving a capsized train of dead and crates of priceless arts. Nice work, buddy. That was uh, awesome. Everything we need to know there. Thank you. Yeah, well done. And if you didn't see the All movie right. and you got spoiled by that, that's your own problem. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, why are you still listening? I take no prisoners. <laughs> nah, clearly. Yeah. Okay, so uh, it's review time, guys. And here on mm-hmm. uh, Bond by Numbers, whenever we review a film, a Bond film, or as in this case, a non-Bond film, we look through story and acting and atmosphere, and we issue up to 10 money pennies in each of those categories. Now, uh, given the context of uh, the French resistance and the train, perhaps we should uh, maybe change our currency from money pennies to something a little <laughs> bit more artistic, historical. What do you think? Billiards? Yeah, I, I'm just really are, trying yeah. to think of what currency we could have. We could, uh, hmm. Don't even necessarily a currency. We just have to substitute like uh, a helpful, uh, oh, you know, a helpful ally like Money Penny. We'll just substitute her for Villard, who was you know the one that got this sure. all going. So she was, and also it's a nod to Vel- to Velan as well. So yes, an excellent nod to Velan. So let's do that. Uh, we'll be giving up to ten Villards for each of these categories and uh josh you and i have uh, i've already spoken quite a bit to start us off so i think we should uh, pass the baton to our friend uh, jeff you want to start us off on story sure uh so uh, i i must say that uh i was absolutely uh thrilled to watch this film uh i was absolutely uh mesmerized right from the get-go uh um cool. the 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 cinematography in this film blew my mind. Uh, it was just, uh, I, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I, I was absolutely awestruck by this film just in its entirety uh, in all facets um, with the, so if I'm going to go with story uh, one, I mean, I'm, I'm always a sucker for, you know, um, nonfiction, especially, you know, world war two history. And, and uh, I, I mean, uh, you know, French resistance and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and especially, and what I like about this is that it, it's different. It's, you know, it's about as much as it's a, it's a story about the French resistance and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. It has to do with art. And what was interesting is like, why do they care so much about art? Oh, okay. No, hear me out. Like <laughs> I, I get it. But um, it's interesting because just to see that, um, it's so important to these people where you're like, you know, you see it teeter go back and forth. Like, do we save it? Do we blow it up in the film and to go back and forth? And I think that's interesting. What I, what I liked about the story is that it it just shows that the people are like, yes, it's just art. Like it's not lives, but because they've been, uh, you know, they've been, um, you know, uh, under German rule for so long and they can see sort of the tide of the war, you know, the, the tide of the war is changing. And so now they're like, let's take this back. Like this is, it's mm-hmm. more of a symbol, right? It's, yeah, it's the symbol, right. like with all these great artists and this art um, that really it, yeah. shows uh, the diversity and the culture of France. They're like, this is very important. Mm-hmm. And Pride so, and then that's yeah. where, and, and and that's where you know there's that scruples thing. It's like, is it worth the amount of people that we could possibly lose? Uh, you know, uh, like you know, with a body count, is it worth it? And so, and you can see that go back and forth uh, with a lot of the characters in the film. Anyway, so with the story, I thought it was it's very interesting because of how 
the French resistance were so, you know, this group of people and um, they were so passionate about, about taking this back. I thought the story, it, it was very, it, it showed true and it, you could really see the, the, the passion and how it was written and, and portrayed. So with the story, I, I with the uh, Villiard, I gave the, the story, I gave it, a, to be honest, I gave it a, a, a perfect 10. Hey, um, that's a first for us I, I, here I, on the show. Perfect, I, I, I have 10. to say, like, this... I mean, I was talking to Josh about this. I was just saying how much I like this film. Like, I haven't seen a film that I've liked this much in years. And That's I know that great. this is, and I, I'm serious. Like, I, I say I like a lot of films, but this movie literally absolutely blew my mind. Cool. On, That's, in so every cool which way. I'll talk about the other parts going from there. But the mm-hmm. story, I really enjoyed it. And I, I'm. it's obviously refreshing that it is based on a, yeah, you know, really, an actual story. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was very well told i thought um with, with the, the characters it's very realistic um for i mean as much as i i don't know I, I i didn't actually do a lot of research into the actual story like i know that um uh, but it it seemed from what i saw it, it, it was it seemed realistic and the characters as much as maybe they were they made them a little more like uh, caricatures, but I don't know, but I thought the story was very well portrayed and you could what I liked about it is that all characters they weren't too over the top like even though like obviously they made the villain the villain but he was a very he was a different type he wasn't just made to look like you know uh, like a nazi because he wasn't he was Wehrmacht, but he was but he was different and and i i really it just watching how the film portrayed him uh as a sort of a different kind of villain like he enjoyed art and that's why there is the scene when he comes in at the beginning and um where there's almost no dialogue Mm -hmm. almost no dialogue and you just see him um you know just take a look at the art just watch him sort of just like anyone else just walking into a gallery and just sort of taking a moment and 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 you know drinking it in uh that was that was really that was really cool now if we go back again with the story I, I gave it. I gave it a perfect ten just because I thought it just it it explained everything and it was told in such a uh, um, the way the the story was laid out was uh, under, understandable and uh, it, it 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 captivated the audience. Me, and I was uh, I was just enthralled through it. And I thought it was well. I thought it was well written. I thought it was uh, you know. So I yeah, I gave it full marks to be honest awesome. with you. Well, the Academy (laughs) agreed with you. They nominated it for an Academy Award. So as an original screenplay goes, something based on, yeah, like you say, this this non-fiction story. It uh, certainly certainly consistent with what the critics would have thought. Nice one. Uh, Good. Well, I'm happy. What about you, buddy? All right. Well, I I was one grade lower. I gave this 9 out of 10 Villiards. And the only reason why I gave it a 9 out of 10 is because I would have probably liked a little more fleshing out of character in the film. Like... That's, that was That's kind of the one thing that that was missing for me was just a little bit of information on guys like Dedan and 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 like Dedan and Pesque, a little bit of that. Um, but even though like you know that was the one, I guess tiny tiny flaw in this great great diamond of a movie, I nine out of ten is still a pretty awesome oh, yeah. grade no matter what. So I'm going to stay with that because everything else was just fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm going to go here just for the sake of it, like tense 
but believable action sequences. That's like a, oh, and yeah. a chain of events, a train of events uh, that kind of <laughs> build right to the climax all the way through. And one thing I really loved was the use of the MacGuffin. So the art is the MacGuffin, but the MacGuffin has symbolic value, thematic value in the storyline because it's getting all these characters to go and risk their lives to protect it, to you know, pr- prevent it from being stolen by the occupiers of France, right? The Nazis, the Germans. And so everyone is out, is out for the MacGuffin like in any story, but there is a reason behind it besides just plot. This is when you just- Plot, exactly, exactly. And, and that to me is yeah. very interesting. And even the villain himself is out for the MacGuffin, but it's in a believable kind of way, you know, in, mm-hmm. in that sense. Exactly. Um, so that's one of the big things. And of course, just how the film resonates with that theme of, you know, human life versus art. You know, it's asked throughout the movie, what are we fighting for? What are we defending? Are we defending for our individual lives and just so that we can live and survive this conflict so and go on and have families or children, you know, our, our own personal legacies? Or are we, is this more of a nationalist kind of concept where mm-hmm. we are defending the pride of but, France? Exactly. We are protecting our culture because that's going to endure even longer past, exactly. you know, we're right. in the, yeah, you know, totally. people, yeah. we leave this mortal coil. If, so, you know, if you and I die, it would, mm-hmm. We might die, but we do we we want to keep yeah. France's legacy of art and and that kind of thing culture alive, right? So yeah. that's the exactly. yeah. As Tywin Lannister says, you know, our legacy lives on, you know, way, way past the time when we're in our <laughs> graves, right? That's what's important is legacy. But I mean, is legacy important? Is it as important as human lives? That's kind of what we have to ask ourselves. And and this is what this, is what this film asks asked with it in the very last shots when we yeah. see you know the bullet riddled bodies of the laborers, yeah, and like. And then you have, you know, Schofield's uh, von Waldheim lecturing with contempt at La Biche, you know, like yeah. von, von Waldheim is such such high up in his arrogance that he can't see the La Biche is the reason why La Biche is doing what he's doing. We know as an audience that La Biche is, is going is to machine gun uh, von Waldheim, not because he's a brute, but because he just fucking murdered his countrymen, like, just Whoa. like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that just and that just goes to show all the way you know was it worth it and with labiche walking away at the end that question is still asked to us it's not answered it's just presented to us and this is sort of the essay i guess you could say the visual essay that frankenheimer and the writers are trying to espouse to us so you know what you know I, i'm i drink the kool-aid 100 percent, and the, and the kool-aid tastes really good so um, yeah. It often does. I'll also yeah. add how it's a good vintage. Yeah, it was a good vintage Kool Aid. Absolutely, French, French um, vintage. French vintage. Yes, real Kool Aid uh, from the Loire Valley or something like that. Right, real Kool Aid, not that powdery shit. Um, but going... if it's not if it's not from there, it's not real Kool Aid, right? It's exactly. just like uh, colored water sugar. Exactly. Uh, but uh, yeah, I also like even though, like I mentioned, you know, I would like some more character development. This is not the kind of film that Frankenheimer was was making. I think that was that would have been more of the idea of the film that Arthur Penn was making. So maybe a little bit of that of what Arthur Penn intended to be put into the storyline, and that would have probably brought this to a ten for me. Maybe like an extra fifteen, twenty minutes, fifteen minutes, ten minutes of some extra character moments could have been put in there. But you know what? For how this worked as a thriller, as an action movie, I got no complaints in that in that sense. Uh, even like guys like. Uh, Dedon and Pasquet, you know, were believable. And even, even though they they were kind of archetypes of different types of resistance fighters you run into, you know, you have kind of like the average looking guy like Dedon who's just caught in 
into it because he wants to protect his country or save his country. And then you have the more determined and like professional type like uh, Pas- Pasquet, because you got to admit it, like Pasquet was 100% like French uh, French resistance guy. Like he had the bicycle. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. able to, he, he had organizational <laughs> skills out as yin yang. Like he, he yeah. did. He yeah. was he was good at what he did, and it sucked that he got like gunned down so soon after the crash in the in the yard. But yeah, hey, um, but yeah, I just liked all the little faucets of characterization they had in this film. I loved how the Germans were portrayed; uh, they were portrayed as yeah. competent, which is so refreshing. Yeah. And there's even yeah. kind of an ambiguity towards them as antagonists. Like, are they just like patriotic German soldiers of the Wehrmacht do, following orders for their country, or are they ruthless Nazis? When you think of the scene with Heron and how he figures out how Buhl sabotaged yeah. the locomotive. Mm-hmm. You hate Heron right away for getting Papa Buhl killed. But throughout later on through the movie, you can see um, Heron is sort of slowly seen as a situation unfolds. He's kind of questioning von Waldheim. Yeah, he's stu- yeah, and, but, yeah, that's right. So although, and I'll, and I just, and I'll go, I'll go into that actor uh, Wolfgang Price in the, um, in the acting part of the thing. But um, I just found that very believable. And it's interesting because I'm watching, um, Andor on Disney Plus now, and there's a very similar thing about like resistance fighters and resistance cells, and and all the different operations that they take, and how they're and how they're like portraying the Imperials in that story is very much how they're portraying the Germans in this story. It just gives that feeling of like the villains are competent, they know what they're doing, uh, they're ruthless, but they're also scary. They're not just like dimwits. They're not like dullards who easily get foiled or shot down. They're not cannon fodder in this movie. You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. I, I just found that the Germans were portrayed in a very believable fashion. They were a menace. They were something to avoid. You didn't want to get caught by them. But at the same time, you never felt they were trying to shove them down your throat as Nazis. You get kind of the idea that like von Waldheim has that Nazi aspect because he sees art as degenerate. But is that the propaganda talking to him, you know, getting into his mm-hmm. mind? But you also know because he's a Vaughn, he's therefore German aristocracy, so Prussian he's aristocracy. aristocracy. That's right. So yeah. he so he's so that could just be, you know, his own social gratification above everybody else yeah exactly exactly. so that how he looks contemptuously down on everything right but is he a nazi or is he just like some aristocratic douchebag (laughs) who doesn't care about human life you don't have to be a nazi to not care about human life over art like he does right you know (laughs) so i i I like the ambiguity of that i didn't like the i like the fact that we weren't dealing with like racism per se we were dealing with like Mm -hmm. like an invading force occupying a country and stealing its culture away and that's kind of what this movie was about to me so yeah, uh, 100%. Um, I'm not giving it a full 10 out of 10, but I think 9 out of 10 billiards. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's still a hell of a score, and uh, you're arguing it very well. You know, you, you guys are making me reconsider my own score. Uh, I went for an 8 <laughs> out of 10 on story, which is a Oh, my good, God. What's wrong score. with you? No, I'm just I know, kidding. Right? But <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to repeat everything you guys have said. I, I think that what the story offers us here is really, really engaging. Uh, the story itself is compelling, but the way it's laid out, oh, I, yeah. I really liked, I really liked the way that the deception was teased. You know, the, the big plan was teased, yeah. but as Josh says, we don't like, we get to experience the second half of the, the reveal of like, you know, taking the signs down after the train passes the station. Yeah. We're not told ah, of all of yeah. that in advance, you know, like there is no, no, well, That's... if you think about the scene in Ronan, coming back to an earlier Frankenheimer film that we've reviewed here, where they're all together looking at the board when the team meets and they talk about what their plan is going to be, we do have little yeah. hints hints of that in this. However, it's not so it's not so um, expositional dumped, you know, and you're kind of 
Yeah, I find it a bit more exciting here because we we don't know what's coming in that second half well, of the that's, film. We exactly. just know there is a plan, right? And yeah. we, we get to see some Either of that it, exactly. run out. And so I was really pleased that Frankenheimer decided to do that. We know how we know that the resistance is extensive. We know that there are different channels and there are different routes that have all been activated here, but we have to wait to see what Robert's father's family and friends are going to do. We have to wait to see it. Yeah. And I think that that's really fun for us. Um, I did. I did really like the insert shots as well for the story, telling the kind of the back and forth antagonism. The insert shots of Schmidt on the on the train where he's looking at his map and he's kind of smugly saying, "Yep, <laughs> we're getting closer to we're getting closer to Germany, yeah. boys." You know, like I like that. Yeah. Stuff. That was really really cool. Yeah, that was good. Um, and Schatz looking at it too in, in the locomotive yeah. car, right? Because Schatz was right, was yeah. also falling yeah. off. So he wasn't just yeah. a dumb guard that they could get rid of. Like he was also in on the situation. But yeah, we know but again, when you're talking about the competency, it, yeah. it's, it's nice. Those little, those little, just little things make a big difference uh you know yeah. when you're yeah. you're watching a film especially like a world war ii film where it's always like oh the germans are always the bad guys uh, yeah. fine but it, it's giving them sort of like another uh it, it's just sort of fleshing it out a bit making it a little more uh you know realistic i guess mm-hmm. yeah sorry go ahead and i i do like what you're saying there josh about um the ambiguity of von waldheim's character because yes is he a nazi or is he just an arrogant upper class snob who yeah. is in a uniform yeah. that you know doesn't care about human life because and and it is ambiguous because yeah. the, the scene that jeff stated at the start is really important because we appreciate him taking the time to protect the art with uh, villard there yeah we appreciate the conversation he has on art and then there's that pause and the next thing you know, you hear the goose stepping and in we go, right? Everybody load this stuff up. And she's like, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> and I like yeah. that. I like that. But also you get the contrasting side of things, right? Where like at the end, he says to him, like a, a painting means as much to you as a string of pearls to an ape, right? Like there is yeah. that arrogance. Oh yeah, that was amazing. That arrogance and how about like beauty yeah, belongs was, to a man yeah. who can appreciate it. And uh, like, and he just looks at this right. guy, Labiche, as a as a pig, as an animal, as like, yeah. a, you know, an ape, yeah. as he says, and a lump of flesh. Is that what he calls him? A lump of flesh or something yeah. like that? Which is kind of an um, interesting yeah. way of describing. I know this doesn't sound, this, this doesn't sound good, but I mean, if you think of like Burt Lancaster, who's such a physical actor, who has like this <laughs> physical <laughs> yeah. presence to him and yeah. stuff, like mm-hmm. the idea of like a lump of meat and it's just, it's just kind of, I, you can see how like von Waldheim would just look at, yeah, you know, I get, it makes sense. Beach in that fashion, right? He's just like <laughs> yeah. a, a brawler. He's just a, a burly, yeah, a Neanderthal. Yeah. yeah, and I also think I'm I'm really pleased that Frankenheimer did get the writers to rewrite the ending of the film because I agree with um with what he had said there. I remember picking this note up in the director's commentary that um, originally Penn wanted. Oh, sorry, the writers originally wanted there to be a gunfight at the end between the two characters. But Frankenheimer said, no, you've got Burt Lancaster, who's an established action star, and you've got Paul Schofield, who's a uh, Royal Shakespeare Company actor. The audience ain't going to believe <laughs> yeah. that this guy's ever got a fucking chance with a gun. <laughs> yeah, he's going to have this guy. Best no. So the way Frankenheimer described it is that he said that he, uh, he got the writers to have Schofield talk himself to death. And so you've kind of got like suicide by dialogue. <laughs> but it right? makes sense. It, it totally makes sense. Which is right. his, the totally arrogancy sense. of the character. Of course he's going to talk himself to death. Mm-hmm. Another thing Paul that Schofield plays characters who, get, who talk themselves to, 
to their deaths quite yeah, well. Yeah, you're right. If yeah. you look at a man for all seasons, right? <laughs> all seasons, yeah. <laughs> he talked himself. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, another great <laughs> performance by Schoolfield. But um, another oh, yeah. thing Frankenheimer said, and I wonder what you guys think about this. This will probably be my, one of my last points here on the story, and then we can move on. But um, Frankenheimer wanted the film to also treat the train and the train locomotive as compassionately and almost as humanistically as possible. And so you see that scene yeah. at the end where Lancaster you, yeah. like deliberately goes up and turns the dial slowly, almost as a thank you. Like now yeah. you can settle down, you can have your rest train. You know, Ooh. there's a bit of there's a bit of personification. I mean, anthropomorphizing. I don't I don't know what it is. It's 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 imbuing the train with a human spirit in a sense. Now I'm not going to say that that's what, way, yeah. that's what he yeah. does. But there is no, this idea I, that the train deserves a rest at the end of the film as well. And he wanted to bring mm-hmm. that out. Did you guys spot any moments? I mean, with, without without projecting, did you spot any moments where you felt like the train was being given that character, that sort of that, oh. that kind of human side? Mm-hmm. Besides what you mentioned, not particularly, because I always okay, found yeah, that I thing was yeah. symbolic of the ride is basically... Labiche completed his mission, you know, like he, mm-hmm. that was, that, that was him turning the train off. He's done now, you know, like that, that, that yeah, to me, yeah. that's what that symbolized was. That was the end of the ride, so to speak. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, I was going to kind of talk just about the, well, I was going to talk about the, I am going to talk about the physicality of, of the role and, and, and how um, Lancaster portrayed uh, Labiche, but you can see that, um, the train and sort of the him just showing what Labiche's character was and how he was he knew all facets of working on a railroad and trains totally. yeah. Yeah. that it was sort of just like an extension of him like he just knew like unconsciously oh, yeah, like he could literally be blind and mm-hmm. just be able to do everything mm-hmm. in, in in the train car yeah. and and so I could see that and now I'm now I'm almost visualizing the train as a horse and just sort mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. him and, and how he you know what I mean so yeah I think that's what Frankenheimer was trying to get at exactly what you're saying that, I mean that it, there is a thank it, you it totally to the, makes to sense the animal at the end of this film yeah because he's you're right he's a little more um, gentle with the mm. controls obviously it, it's kind of done but um but it does show that because then when he's he's you know he you can really see him when he's you know physical and doing all the other um uh, uh like motions going through the motions when he's he's actually uh, piloting the train uh, or conducting the train uh it, it does kind of feel like you know like someone on a horse just something like that and so um I don't know if I see as much like you were saying. Oh, I'm going off track here. Pun intended, I guess. Mm-hmm. Actually, not intended, but we'll go with it. Um, I don't see as much sort of um, like you were saying about uh, other other than that scene. Maybe not as much, but I mm-hmm. I did like the physicality of him and just sort of how it just shows the character and and how he is so well versed in. in um, I don't know what the term for engineering the trains are, but like, you could really see that, and uh, it, it really. To be honest, as a viewer, it really made me involved. Like I really, it really captivated me. Cool. And that was one of the things with this film is that that. And I don't know anything about trains, and I like, I don't know anything. And and just watching him, you know, turn the dial and 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 pull the brakes, and throw the coal in. Like I was like mesmerized. Every every shovelful, I was like, yeah, another shovel, let's go. That's like right, I was yeah, really yeah. captivated by this. Yeah, you get into the whole like almost the or- the or- oh, yeah. the organic uh, nature of the train itself. Yeah, like, I don't think it's like a sense of being like 
in a way that kind of i mean it's an animal you have to feed it to take it where you want to go like yeah like the, the train was definitely like a very mm-hmm. vital organ in the resistance in this particular yes. story right that's so what i'm trying to say you can look at it as organically more so than like mm-hmm. anthropomorphically or and yeah, okay. or anamorphically in, in that sense mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. going into um like you were saying jeff like just the sequence like after bull is killed and it shows uh labiche uh fixing the oil the oil oh, line right when he's fixing amazing like, yeah like what i loved about this film is how the, the writing mixed with like the cinematography and editing that created that verisimilitude uh, how well frankenheimer did that was just how it it made to me like the idea of i never thought of it before it's just just the concept of the train engineering. It was just fascinating to me, and the movie yeah. sold that so well. Yeah. And like it was how, how critical, it's so and, complicated. And, yeah, how <laughs> how so complicated, and yet and it, it just went how complicated and and what's the word and intricate that you know yeah the whole the, all those moving pieces how critical they are just to get a train uh, you know just to get like one destination <laughs> going forward to to another <laughs> yeah and how. Uh, and even though, like for example, like you think of that huge crash in the in the train yard in the mid uh, mid film, when all the when all when everything collides together, and how you're like, oh man, that's going to delay the Nazis for at least you know a day for a couple a long of days, time. right? But well, really, like it feels like a long time. Yeah, using the manpower and I guess the control that they had, they were able to push through the night to get everything yeah. all cleaned up and moved Surprising. away. So it's just amazing to believe. me, like how like even though like something like that can be damaged, so almost what we think completely how quickly once you rebuild those things and put them together and how fast you can do it that really amazed me as well and um i give i give full props to people you know who work on trains like men like intricate systems required for all of these for each one to work in their own separate way to take you where you need to go but seeing all the manpower behind it and stuff and yeah that's just really fascinating uh to me and the movie sold that really well I probably went over oh, way yeah. too long in my description there, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's all right. The two the two marks I took off, guys. I, I'll um, I'll justify that now in the best way I can. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I didn't go quite as high as you, I, I agreed with Josh that uh, I felt like there was a bit there's a bit of a nebulous atmosphere to to the scenes with Didon and Jacques and Pesqua as well. Like I had to watch them twice to understand their relationships. And then I realized, oh, he's not interested in telling me the relationships. He's interested in just getting the dialogue from these resistance men out. And I was like, okay, so I can go along with that. Brushstrokes. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. one thing I did feel was lacking, and I, I felt this quite, um, quite sincerely, and maybe it was of the time, but I, I really found it difficult how little of Villard and Christine are in the film, given their importance to the story. Mm-hmm. Now, I know the movie yeah. already runs at like That's two hours point. and 12 movement, minutes or something like that. But, I mean, these women mm-hmm. are lost in the film a little bit for me. Like, women like this, right, historically, are so important to the story of the Resistance. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, get it, I get that it's an action film and Lancaster's the bill, but... It would have been really good to see more emphasis there on the women's sacrifices. And this, by the way, isn't me coming at it from a 21st century perspective. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, or like, a, you know, a, a feminism perspective. I'm actually looking at it mm-hmm. in its context. Like, 
like I didn't I I don't see Frankenheimer as a director who shies away from telling things as they are. So why didn't these mm. two female figures have more of a presence in the picture? Like just even a couple of more scenes here and there mm-hmm. where it showed them having mm. control instead of asking for some permission. Like it was permissive yeah. for the women in in that sense. Like the affection between Christine sure. and, and Lancaster also. I know it wasn't affection like they sleep together because they don't. Yeah. But it it did felt it, it felt a little droopy to me. And I think maybe the reason it felt droopy was because he hadn't any opportunity to meet and discourse with her. Like, it was just like, oh, the woman whose husband died and you're the action star. So got to give the audience a little cuddle, you know, like that. Yeah. Give, her, give her some more time yeah. on, the, on the screen, man. I would have liked to have mm-hmm. seen that. And Villard especially. She had two two scenes in the whole film or three. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's it. I also refused. And- I was going to say, I also refuse to believe that there isn't any female members of the French resistance because we know they were, there were. Oh, there's yeah. a lot. And yeah. Yeah. like there's them, famous, right? famous so, ones. Yeah. Oh, you, yeah. She is, but, yeah. but I'm talking about oh, like, you mean like track there could have been like, like peop- yeah, yeah. I'm not just track oh, workers. Yeah. I'm talking about just like resistance members, you know, just people who would come, who'd be part of that as well, you know, but mm-hmm. anyway. So yeah, that, that's, that's me at eight. Uh, Josh at nine, Jeff at ten. So those are some high, high scores for the story of the train. Do you want to go back, <laughs> Jeff, to you? Go for it, buddy. Go go to uh, acting. Sure. Um, so acting um, was actually, I'll be honest, it was my lowest uh, mark um, just because I did kind of find it a bit like Lancaster is good and I I did appreciate. I I Okay, so I thought what I really liked about this film was the physicality in it. Mm-hmm. Like I like Burt Lancaster. I know that he's a big guy and like, I, and Josh actually had advised me that uh, he was like in the circus and he was a very physical actor. Mm-hmm. And th- this, obviously this role, he was very physical. Um, but I just found that in some scenes he was like, not in a few scenes he, he hammed it up. So that, and that kind of made mm-hmm. me drop it a couple of mm-hmm. points and it was kind of, there was some kind of like cheesy lines here and there, but I think it just has to do with sort of um, the way uh, film and, and, and this kind of things were portrayed at the time. So whatever. Yeah. Uh, I are, gave you're it right though. You're right. Half. Lancaster does. He does, doesn't he? He issues that line. That's almost like an Arnold Schwarzenegger moment where he's like, he's like, keep your eyes open. Your horizons about to be broadened. Or he says something like that. I don't remember. exactly. Well, he was yeah. quoting but, back von Waldheim, yeah. right? Because von Waldheim is, is like, I think you'll enjoy Germany. Gives you a chance to broaden your horizons. That's what von Waldheim said as they were leaving the station. Yeah. So he was basically quoting back, uh, what's his name? But it he does talk, feel very he action movie, Heron, how he? he did it. I thought he was talking to Heron at that That was von Waldheim. Okay, cool. No, I was, sorry, Jeff. I, but I, to be honest, I just felt like some of the scenes with Lancaster were just kind of like, like Josh never saying like old-timey kind of like, you know, uh, but um, that being said, like, I mean, it was a very good ensemble cast. Like there was, uh, it was, uh, it was well acted. I'm still giving you eight and a half, um, but it, nice it's one. definitely the lowest mark I'm going to give out of the three categories that we uh, rate films on, uh, on our podcast. Um, I thought it was still um, very well acted. And again, I, I don't know many of these actors. I mean, they might, because a lot of them are, are French that they, they yeah. might, uh, be very well to do in the French cinema at the time, yes. um, which is is good. And so that just means that I'm just not 
as well uh, versed in that. But I, I, I thought the acting and the thing, the physical acting of them, like I believe them. Like you know, when you see the when they're you know when they're emoting and that kind of stuff, I believe it. Like mm-hmm. when you're watching this film, I know it's black and white. I, I, it feels like it's 1940. I, I don't know. Maybe that was the point because obviously in 1964 they had color films. Of course, yeah. and I. I think I think choosing or whatever the reason, maybe Josh or Scott, you know the reason why they chose it to be black and white. I think this was the right decision because mm-hmm. I feel. Well, I'll get into this, um, but in, in the other category, but in relation to the filming and just the look of the film, which was just absolutely gorgeous. Um, but um, anyways, with acting, I gave it I gave it an eight and a half because I thought it was it was very well acted. I, I really liked Schofield. Uh, I really enjoyed his character, not just being like like we've been saying before. I'm not going to you know beat a dead horse here, but I just liked him being kind of a refreshing uh, and, and very sort of interesting and engaging villain, and not just sort of like the black hat. Yeah. Um, especially, I liked how they introduced him in that opening uh, scene, um, and like I said, that really captivated me with the lack of dialogue, which really kind of set the tone for me, being like, "Wow, um, this is going to be a good." film and uh and so i uh, again what i liked about the acting was it was such a physical like i mean mostly with burt lancaster but i guess also just the nature of it being having to do with with trains and, and just really showing the physicality of working on a railroad mm-hmm. and, and that kind of stuff and so that really captivated me it opened my eyes like i really don't know anything yeah. about it Felt and i was just like wow almost, this takes yeah. a lot of manpower it's very physical and it really that I think is one of the things that really engaged me is being like, wow, you know, he's got to, he's got to work really hard. It's like, look at all this, like, you know, all that, it really engaged you. It really made me think like, okay, uh, you know, let's go, let's turn that crank, do a pull, you know, you're really, you're really, uh, it's really engaging you as an audience. So I thought the acting, um, even though I gave it, it's the lowest mark I'm going to give, uh, eight and a half, I think is, is very appropriate. And, uh, uh, that's where I'm going with that. <laughs> cool. Well, to answer your question about the black and white stock, um, yeah, Frankenheimer wanted the film to be black and white. He called it, uh, and he, he was saying how pleased he was that he did it in black and white. Uh, he calls it the last great action movie in black and white. Right. So I saw that. Yes. Something of that nature. Anyway, I have cool. to agree. Cool. Eight and a half. Josh, what about you for your acting? All right. So I would say my MVP for this film was Paul Schofield. Um, I, I just thought that like he just exuded both sophistication and arrogance, bemusement, yeah. contempt. Like he was all those things combined. And I like as I we talked about in the writing of his character, how he's a very ambiguous, ambiguous villain. Like he could just be a typical snob art heist villain from any movie, but they put him into in a German uniform and and it works so well with the ideology and the themes of this time period that, you know, and Schofield brought it all the way, you know, as you said, London stage actor, this was two years Mm. before a man for all seasons. So he wasn't a big name. And so I think this was probably one of the roles that he did that probably put him on the map. Now I do know that he played more on the London stage prior to the film, a man for all seasons. So Mm. that was probably a necessary progression kind of just like, uh, for example, um, Mark Rylance playing Cromwell Mm. on stage in Wolf Hall and then getting the, 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 the TV role as well. Right. Um, so yeah, 
uh, Paul Schofield, which like was was great. Like every, every like my, one of my favorite scenes is that dolly shot when he come when he's coming up in the motorcycle sidecar after the train collision. Yep, and he's like in his pajamas oh, yeah. and he has like his big his, his big field marshal coat on and stuff like that. And he has yeah, his on yeah. and he's ranting and raving, but he still came off very professional and just believable in that sequence where like he would look other other actors might have made that scene look ridiculous and made him kind of like a clown. It, Mm-hmm. He pulled it off. Like his character was there, one hundred percent. He was one hundred percent committed in the role, and even how he kind of looked ridiculous in that one sequence, he was still menacing as hell. Because in that very same drab, uh, sorry, attire, he orders the death of Jacques and the engineer. Like that, that their execution right. follows immediately following that. Right. So it's yeah, it's uh, that was that was impressive. Schofield all the way. And th- and speaking of Schofield, Jeff, I'm really thinking that Hugo Weaving was totally inspired by uh, Schofield in the train for when he portrayed Red Skull in, uh, uh, in Captain I America. Can absolutely. 100%, wow. That's a good point. And I would agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> that cool. makes sense to me. Yeah. Like, good, good call on that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's too bad they lost Weaving that, because yeah. he hated the makeup on his face. So he uh, could well, I can he just couldn't that. do it afterwards. Anyways. But yeah, Schofield was fantastic. So Lancaster, uh, he was solid. Um, I think his physicality and screen presence is what sold me on his labiche. Like, I like the vulnerability that he showed in the scenes with yeah. uh, Moreau's Christine, even though I found those were kind of the forced romantic scenes of the of the movie that just had to put in there. Um, but I liked his anxiety and frustration over Papa Boole and the resolve that he exhibits once he's playing for keeps. Uh, his worst scene, and Jeff is talking about hammy moments, was just that it's when his Americanness and... I think just like an acting style from like the 1940s comes through because the screenplay pushed it in there was when he's like, when he reacts to having to paint the train afterwards, I, his whole like speech and rant just felt like something from like a movie from 20 years before. Like yeah. it, it would have worked more in that kind of acting style would have worked much better back in the forties. We would have accepted mm, it more, but this is 1964. We're on the cusp of like, we've already had the French new wave and Italian neorealisms and Italian cinema of the fifties and sixties coming in here. Uh, you know, like already method acting has been established through Brando and stuff like that. And I just found like for 64, Lancaster was kind of hamming it up old school in that one sequence, but maybe that's how he's directed. But mm-hmm. other than that, like you just follow him throughout the movie. He's just a force of nature. He's like just he's like a Superman, but you know that he's not because yeah. he's limping. I mean, I know for a fact that uh, Lancaster injured himself on the golf course while filming the movie. Mm, so they actually they actually wrote the limp into the movie. Yeah, uh, oh, so wow. he, he was, shot he on was actually bridge. limping. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's oh, why they did that okay. scene. Yeah. yeah, I'm surprised the Nazis didn't see all the blood trails inside the house when they showed up there. But uh, maybe it was a, it was buried deep or something, or in, uh, in like in the flesh, or uh, it could have grazed him and just like kind of took out it's possible the nerve. I have no idea. But anyways, or if it was just really dark, they thought it was a Merlot. Yeah, could be, <laughs> yeah, right. could be, could be. <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> Jane Moreau, uh, now this is a very at the time she was a very well established actress who appears in an American production american france production uh, but she was a well-established actress by this point she was one of Truffaut's girls like she appears in mm. a couple of films of note before then and afterwards of course um i thought she was really good in her own scenes like just portraying that how she was this widow but how she compartmentalized her grief and anger by focusing completely on mm. her work about making a living but she conveyed that guilt mm. inside her for not 
taken part in the big, you know, in the resistance. You could see that in her character that she was guilty about that, and she was, and that, and that made her more angry and sullen, I think, in in her role. But that also made her sympathetic to someone like, you know, Labiche when he comes around. And that I made, I found her protecting him as a way of, uh, I guess, of exonerating herself of that guilt that she was feeling for continuing on without doing anything after it was almost her redemption died. as a choice. Yeah, exactly. I thought Moreau did a great job right, at that. Ahead. I just didn't quite buy like mm. the, the chemistry that they were forcing between them. They were both good in their own scenes together. Like they were, they were, at, they were adequate, but I just found that they were kind of forcing that. And I was more interested in Christine as a character on her own. And that was one thing that was missing from the screenplay. I just didn't want to see her as the foil, yeah, the romantic foil to mm-hmm. Lancaster. I yeah. wanted to see Moreau on her own. I wanted to see her maybe, you know, hide Jews or something like in her, or seller or something like that but that wasn't really her character and that was just how it was written but we were still allowed to be disappointed with some changes in the story for the sake of the economy of the narrative and you know that just happens nothing's perfect right um you know i was worried that they were going to have like a forced kiss right like when they were like Mm, i was so glad i knew it was coming but it but it but it wasn't uh, it wasn't like over the top and they didn't have a love scene but and so i believed it because i'm like they're both emotional and like you could see you know and like you were describing her character and you could see how like she's kind of like torn between like she hasn't done much and like, she's a widow and she's like you know i i want to help so and but they're both like very emotional because of what have, what has just happened so yes i totally under i completely understand the embrace that they did because there it's just like you know a really big uh, emotional situation so obviously they just you know they just want to have a physical embrace and that makes sense but mm-hmm. it wasn't too over the top like i was expecting it to be mm-hmm. so i was okay with that to an extent yeah me too I absolutely I, agree. I mean the romantic uh shipper in me what have you like totally believes that he's going to limp down the road back into town and sure. he's going to probably yeah. end up marrying her more most likely <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. i'm just saying that's a very believable uh turn of events yeah, for, sure. for that to, for that uh-huh. to occur uh of course for a moment there, I thought that she was on the that she might have been one of the civilians that were killed. But when I rewatched certain yeah. scenes, I, yeah. they, they, were, they were all men who were on the cowcatcher at, at the front. Yes, right? it was all yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so Elber Remy and Charles Milio as Dedon and Pesquet, they were good in their small moments. Like they had, they were. I found them believable, warm blooded characters in their own way. And um, I've I've already mentioned um, a Wolfgang Price as Heron, uh, ruthless, utterly competent. The actor was able to channel a loyal, dedicated officer completely, even though you hate him. You know, for getting Bull killed, uh, he was so mm-hmm. damn good at his job and intelligent. Mm-hmm. And that subtle yep. expression on his face when he realizes von Waldheim has lost the plot, like when, when, when he yeah, says, yeah. "Go shoot that yeah. ver- that officer," and Waldheim's yeah, like, good. "What?" <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He, he was good. He was he was really good. And um, I also loved Jacques Marin as Jacques, the station manager. I, I, he was such a great little uh, mini character. He was good. Yeah, I felt really bad for him when he was killed. And I, I just and I loved the the kind mm. of back and forth he had with the with his German chaperone. He just seemed disinterested reading like his. I don't know. Was he reading like a nudie magazine or something? Like I don't know what been, he was looking yeah, at it's there. Tough but to tell what it was. Yeah, but I'd like I'd like <laughs> yeah. a little spinoff yeah. series, Jacques Jacques stories. That'd be good. Yeah, that'd yeah. be cool. Totally. And props to uh, and th- I-, I didn't know this because I found like just how just the way that he looked and his body, his shape of his body and his face and just the characterizations. I'm like this actor who played Papa Boule, He must have been some kind of comic actor. Michel Simon 
is a well-known French, as it turns out, he, as I looked him up, he is a well-known French comic actor. So him being in this oh. movie was a big deal for French audiences. It was very expressive, yes. I yeah. totally see that. But he's, I loved his character in the, in the short bit we had oh, with yeah. him, and I was so sad yeah. to lose him. But it I also, yeah, it's true. But his death was so impactful to Labiche's role going forward that, like, yeah. it was worth it. You Motivates know, the second, uh, the second, absolutely, act, or yeah, the third act rather. And Suzanne Flan, she was great as Villard in her in her few moments when she when she's imploring upon them to like, you know, you must save this art and setting everything up. So overall, like, uh, the acting wasn't like spectacular. Like we weren't watching like Arthur Penn's, for example, Bonnie and Clyde or something. We weren't watching. Um, an Ingmar Bergman film or something like that, right? Like it was an action film, but it had more than adequate performances. So I give it eight out of 10 for acting. Okay. Eight for you. Yeah. I was at a seven and a half for my mm-hmm. acting. Um, you've, uh, you've said a lot of what I was going to say, so I won't repeat that. I will just <laughs> say that. Uh, my, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, I just think it means we're on the same page. I agree. I think Schofield steals the show here in performance, at least. Uh, Lancaster does what oh, yeah. what's on the tin of spinach, right? He does that, and he does it well. Um, but <laughs> here with Schofield, my favorite scene, man, is is when the train comes off the rails a second time, right? Uh, just following Lapiche removing the bolts and all of that towards the end of the film. The expression on his face, man, oh, yeah. like it is so full of contrast. And so, like, part of me is thinking <laughs> he's going to laugh. No, he's not going to laugh. He's not going to laugh. But he's so pissed off and he's like respectful at the same time as he's like full of menace. He, you, just, you can just see it. It's such good, such good character acting. And um, I, I really liked him in that scene. Also because I felt like, what's he going to do now? <laughs> like, what's he going to do well, yeah. right now in this yeah. moment? And, yeah. and I like oh, that. Yeah. But, like uh, reprisals. Oh, man, what's oh, going to happen? Dude, yeah. For sure. Anyway, um, I, I think that Albert Remy's Didon, I felt he was chewing the scenery in a couple of these these mm-hmm. moments like and it didn't seem to me like he was ever raised for this game like he was just like yeah well i'm gonna deliver milk in the morning and i'll I'll help paint some train cars in the afternoon and then i gotta go back to my yeah. auntie's place and you know i gotta deliver these presents he was to, serviceable for her birthday and he was serviceable but he didn't never felt to me like he was like, he understood or he was really bigged up by the seriousness of the situation now maybe that's just him playing a part as a resistance fighter who's on the cool i don't know but you know the brainchild of this enormous this this enormous and intricate derailing plan like i would have thought he'd be a bit more tense but he was just kind of like laid back the whole time like yeah i thought maybe he was just jaded because maybe Maybe he's been in the resistance for quite some time and this is just another mission kind of thing and he's maybe not trying to i I don't know that that's just that way he did play it that way listen speaking of this guy speaking of uh, didon's character I made a note here, and I could be wrong. You can fact-check it. Listeners, fact-check this, and please let me know <laughs> if Albert Remes Didon was dubbed by the same guy who did Pedro Armandiaras in From Russia With Love because he sounds exactly the same as Karen Bay. Exactly Ooh. the same. So I'm I also if, found that Jean Moreau reminded me possible. of uh, Nikki Van Der Zyl. Oh, yeah, because, yeah. Because, you know, yeah, Nikki Van Der Zyl, she done. was the one that dubbed all the women for the early Bond films, oh, right? right? Oh, yeah. That's right, yeah. And yeah. I found that, like, Jean Moreau kind of reminded me of that. But then when I was like, no, no, that's definitely Jean Moreau talking, so. Well, for me, it was Didon's character, uh, Albert Remy, yeah. who mm-hmm. was dubbed. But I'm just wondering if he was. Yeah, he might you have know, been. Jean Bouchard... Jean Bouchard's uh, Captain Schmidt was pretty cool. I call I was referring to him the whole time as uh, Rick Moranis Nazi. 
That's that's what, what I was. He does him. look I was like Rick Moranis. That's how I'm like, yeah, Rick, like, yeah, Rick, yeah. yeah, with the glasses exactly. on. I thought he might be like a him. Yeah, not, like I was gonna say Nazi Rick Moranis, yeah. but I didn't want it to sound like Nazi. I don't want to. I shouldn't. Yeah, I'm not. I but yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'll just say like Veermock. Are you, are you the key master or whatever? Are, are you the key? I'm the, I'm the, I'm the oh, key yeah. holder. Yeah, right. I am the yeah. key holder, eh? Are the you the holder. gatekeeper? Yeah. I am the gatekeeper of Zool. Oh, I got the key. Yeah. Oh. I got the key to the so good. You know, the art installation. Yeah. Anyway, look, guys, that's they, it for they, they should have another, I went seven uh, and a Nazi half. like Dave Thomas. Uh <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Dave Thomas. Yeah, yeah, the flying dog. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. strange brew, people. Yeah. Strange brew. That's what we're talking about. Uh, 7.5 yeah, yeah, exactly. for my acting here. It was good, but I, I felt like Didan was a little bit horizontal. And um, I also felt like, uh, oh, wait, I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's a bit low for acting, given... Given that I liked everybody else, um, hey, Lancaster was it's a free just a, world. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, I'm going to stick to seven point five. It's a feel. It's a feel. But I, I would uh-huh. agree that uh, I would agree that uh, Schofield steals the show. Um, I just don't oh, think absolutely. I'm. I just don't think that, I'm yeah. as much there with you guys. Like I like him in A Man for All Seasons mm-hmm. okay. much better. And um, mm-hmm. sure, and, and that's just that's just the way it is. But in this movie, yeah, he's oh, he's good. fine. So like, let's let's finish this up, guys, with atmosphere. Uh, well, I mean, again, I was, I was right from the beginning. I was just completely blown away. So when I say atmosphere, I'm going to talk about sort of the cinematography. I thought this film was absolutely immaculate, like uh, just right off the bat, just the way everything is filmed. Every shot, it reminds me, to be honest, almost every shot looks like a painting to me. I mean, for me as a viewer, every shot was so immaculately done. The atmosphere um the mise-en-scene if we're going to use french terms and art uh um, was was very well done and you could tell that it was filmed in france it was like i know there were you were saying there were some you know um studio um uh, filming but you could definitely tell that it was filmed in france and that kind of thing and so i just felt the atmosphere of this film was was excellent it really um it, it just really helped with how it was done. Um, I thought the cinematography was absolutely mind blowing. I mean, this uh, when I think of films uh, and cinematography that blows my mind, I always think of like the first time I saw um, Orson Welles. One of my I, Citizen what, Kane. Why can't I think of the name? Yes. Yeah, I can't believe I forgot the name of it there. But um, just I, again with the, you know all the different tracking shots and the dollies and those long, the long shot. I, I really enjoyed the long takes in this film, which helped I feel bring the viewer into the atmosphere because mm-hmm. it gives you a chance to sort of uh, be aware of your surroundings and sort of drink it in. And 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 also obviously it makes the emotion of of each scene a little longer because you have more of a chance to see what's happening uh and so i thought with that really helped with the atmosphere i was engaged in every scene like i was just captivated you know in almost every scene especially for things that i'm not necessarily captivated by like i'm like i didn't think that i would be you know biting my nails and just sort of like half like my nose was like half an inch from the screen when i'm watching him like hit hit the 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 with the uh, the mallet on the the railroad tracks, you know every bang, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's hurry up, hurry mm-hmm. up," you know, or every crank of the wheel, or every time he pulled the brakes, uh, and just and just um, 
it just I felt the way it was filmed it really the atmosphere and the cinematography would go hand in hand and I thought um, just right right from the very beginning of the film it you, it really kind of brings you in and, and you really are uh, feel attached to this film at least that was uh, it really did that for me so I that that was the biggest thing I felt the atmosphere of the film was the thing that engaged me the most cool. and I'm, I'm giving that full marks of 10 anyways awesome. I, I thought it was it just absolutely blew my mind this movie, awesome, this, this film like I was talking to Josh I was like I I can't believe how how much I enjoy this film. I'm so glad, and I'm to definitely going to watch I mean, it many many more times. Twenty eight out of thirty. Twenty eight point five out of thirty. Yeah, man. like that's, I, it, that's awesome. This movie is just unreal. That's, that's <laughs> like, so cool. I, I mean, like, this is my opinion. Glad. I'm really glad. It, wow, I loved it. Loved it. Cool, Josh. What about you? Atmosphere, man. Atmosphere. All right, so. The crown glory of this film is the cinematography. There's no doubt about it. Oh, the man. tracking shots, the dolly shots, even like the use of medium Unreal. close-ups and zooms and close-ups. To, but all, the camera's always moving. It's static, but you know it's going to move any second to follow the characters. That's right. You can yeah. kind of almost like, you'll know that you'll never, a scene will never sit still or for a certain amount of time, even though some yeah. scenes go on for a little long. Like there are long takes sometimes, yeah. but then all of a sudden it starts moving again. Like you're just on your edge yeah. of the edge of the seat I just, I really wasn't no, expecting it. I was and it not. made me think, it made me think that this no, is a type of not. film that they would show at a film yeah. class, you know, like they would study this yes. for its camera work. I'm surprised know? that oh I God, never saw yeah. this in film class, to be honest with you. Like, I am really surprised that, that you know, I'm, they show them in training. I'm surprised I've never heard this film really before this. For Frankenheimer, I know for film, they usually show like um, either the Manchurian Candidate or... Seven Days in May, I think, is Black Black one. Sunday. Black Sunday, I think, is another one that they show Black too. Black Sunday, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Didn't Williams score that? Black Sunday, yeah, he did. I was really close to putting that one on here, man. The, the terrorist uh, attack at the football match, yeah, I was really close to selecting it, but I thought, you know, do something different, do something different, Bowman, do something different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So this film had two uh, DOPs. It has um, one guy, Walter Wotitz, and then uh, Jean Tournier. Now, that name sounds familiar to Bond fans. He actually lensed Moonraker. Nice one. Oh. So he was the cinematographer, Moonraker. And you got to admit, some of the photography they did in Moonraker was oh, really, superb, really yeah. good. I mean, really nice. you had the Renoir. Stuff oh, yeah. Particularly, yeah. Yeah. You had Renoir in The Spy Who Loved Me, you know, helping with all the lights, along with Kubrick as well, obviously. But then, you know, you have Moonraker and those, like, anti-gravity sequences for example and and how they just and how we film the models and, and there's so much in that like moonraker is a beautiful looking film its quality itself is questionable obviously and debatable but it's a good it was a good looking film for sure but yeah Tournier, though like sure. i'm sure this waltz guy was probably helping out because I, I just feel like i don't know maybe it's a good combined effort and maybe it's just frankenheimer having two experienced veterans behind the camera that he was able to give the movie a look that it has like I, I don't know about every scene to painting. I mean, every scene to me mm. is, just, is yeah, it wasn't really that. a painting per se. The paintings are in the car, yeah. in the train cars. But uh, the black and white does look fantastic. There's no doubt about oh, it. Yeah. I mean, going back, for example, to a, another black and white film and more modernized time was like Schindler's List, right? And I can't imagine Schindler's yep. List in color because I think black and white really helps no. serve the verisimilitude, almost the documentary like feel that yeah. gave the film and i think this is that's what a, this is what the comparison this is what the train did for me was mm-hmm. keep it in black and white mm-hmm. kept things realistic yeah. kept things when you remove the technicolor 
you're out you're outside of that like Hollywood dream factory scene and you're dealing with just the subject matter itself because you're not concerned with how what the colors are you're concerned about the, how the story is being told and the characters in the story and the narrative so to me that's something that brings everything into focus and yeah cinematography was just like fantastic Ooh, I mean, we can go on and on about it I think one of my favorite shots in the whole film was after Papa Bull's death it shows uh, Lancaster working on uh, fixing that part of the of the train for like the oil line, and going back to yeah. the acting, I actually believe Lancaster knew what the hell he was doing there. Like just how like just how <laughs> yeah, he was. Kind of. It's almost like it was it was like reflexive. Like yeah. did Daniel Day Lewis is that yeah, Daniel Day exactly. Lewis or is that Burt yeah. Lancaster? You know what I mean? And, uh, and just how like yeah. <laughs> just how like the camera slowly zooms in and shows him what he's doing as he's like filing away and stuff, and then he he then he goes in and attaches that one piece to the, to the larger yeah. piece. And then it follows him moving like as he goes across like the work floor, because basically that piece is being uh, brought over by a chain, right? And he's bringing that all the way to the other side and just like, wow, like you just basically sold me that Labiche is someone who was a train engineer, who is now a resistance fighter. Yeah. You're also with the camera itself exactly. creating tension and anxiety to the viewer because will they be able to fix the train? Is he going to be shot if he doesn't get this right? Like there's a whole bunch of things going on and the camera just sold that so beautifully to me. So, so well, that's just another, this is one example. And then you have like the way that, that the camera follows Lancaster as he rolls down that big, big hill, mm-hmm. you know, awesome to the tracks too. below, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, like there's just so many fantastic moments in this film. And this cinematography good, though, was because a big you're, thing. You're helping me tick. You're helping me save time. You're ticking them off my list as well as you go. So, uh, less I have to okay. talk about when uh, carry on my man well, uh, moving forward other things that you know create atmosphere we can talk about the music uh, Marie Charvet's score was very minimalist but I think that was a wise choice because it allows a Foley artist's full sway with the sounds of the train the train whistle the, so- the sound of it on the tracks just ever going ever going um the sound of branches and bushes being pushed aside, the rattle of machine gun fire, the shouts of German soldiers, the pounding percussion of allied bombing, like all of that works so well in tandem. All of these elements, Frankenheimer uses at his disposal to create the mood of this picture. And I'm just like Jeff when it comes to that, when it comes to this category, I'm 10 out of 10 for uh, atmosphere. Okay, wow. Um, wow, wow. Well, I, I really take that seriously from the two of you because you're not just cinephiles. Uh, you're very experienced in film, too. Obviously, Josh with his film school education. and <laughs> More than me, man. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, uh, those, are, those are big scores from guys that know film. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, um, you teach Hitchcock, I, I, man, in school. So of course you, I do. You know about yeah, camera yeah, work and blocking and all that sort of all, stuff, just like I do. I, I know do. all about it. Of course I do. Of course I do. But my yeah. point is I don't watch as many films as you do. I know what I know, mm, and I know fair. what I know, and I need to teach. Like I, And I can see it when I watch new films. But I'm not at the same place mm. in life that you are when it comes to watching movies. I, I don't have that, mm-hmm. that sort of, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't have the same uh, quantity of films that run through the, my, my brain's little encyclopedia. So, mm-hmm. uh, and with your experience Fair. and education, you know, that, that a 10 out of 10, that's guys, I think we're hit some history here today. I don't, I don't remember having 10 out of 10. Yeah. I, I was thinking that too, actually. This. So this is really exciting. I was thinking that too. This, this is a total treat for a train file. I don't know what you call people who love trains, but this, this movie is a total treat. <laughs> I, was, because, 
I was thinking our uh, Josh, our friend Alex, who's yes. absolutely like he he is the biggest. He is like a train guru. He knows everything. Right? So yeah. I'm I was gonna I'm gonna ask him if he's ever seen this film, but if he yes. hasn't, he needs to freaking watch it now because he's yeah. also like a military historian and. Cool. Anyway, Very so this cool. this is totally up his alley. Well, Anyways. this will be a gold mine for him and for <laughs> anybody the else museums. who's inclined yeah. towards the the rail that way. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's a real treat. Yeah. Um, little things I noticed though, I pick up a lot of little things in the mise en scène. You're, you're talking about the mise en scène, you know, that arrangement of visual mm-hmm. cues and 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 techniques. I I noticed little things like all the sabotage posters in the office. I thought they were kind of cool, like all the little yeah. loose lip sync things. They were things. really cool. They were really neat. The double yeah. speak, you know. It's, I like all that little stuff. Yeah, and it's I happening. Sabotage it's really is really happening, cool. and it's <laughs> happening. It's happening. Yeah, I, I mean, this is just yeah. an absolute clinic in camera work, though, isn't it? Like everything, everything. Um, I was going to ask you, Jeff, with respect to the Spitfire scene and and the bombing. Like, hmm. uh, did oh yeah, you, did you see? And did you feel those were real, like the way the planes were integrated into the into the shots? Like the Yeah, well actually that's something I thought it was like how many times has has a resistant like I don't know how many times they've like, you know, tried to steal trains and stuff like that in relation to resistance operations. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that it does seem believable. Mm-hmm. I, it's, I thought it's neat to see it. It was pretty realistic. Like and Josh, you mentioned the the bombing of the, the the station and the rails and stuff, right? The, uh, a few the various ago. train yard, yeah, yeah. I I've watched that scene a couple times, and I don't know why. I don't know why, but I was I was thinking there was a real David Lean feel to those scenes, like like a Lawrence of Arabia or like a yeah. Bridge on the River Kwai <laughs> thing going on with the establishing shots yes. and then the big pullaways, the big yeah. pullaways and the crane shots. For sure. I just felt like that was a real effort to make it a vista. You know what I mean? Oh. And that's a yes. good point. It, it, was, it was really neat to see that because it made it felt more epic in scale than just, you know, the intimacy of the operation itself. Um, yeah, there's some great shots in here. The closing montage with the canted angles and the kind of the juxtaposition between the dead bodies and the art, which was very moralistic, of course. And, you know, what's worth what? Yes. How do you value life? You know, like all right. that stuff was really was really cool. Um, as for the soundtrack. I got the soundtrack. I've got the soundtrack uh, by uh, Maurice Jarre, oh. and I'm I, I totally appreciate what you're saying about allowing the, the the sound effects and allowing the the realistic features to be highlighted. You know, the hissing, the screeching instead of the musical score. But I felt like that was a bit too washed out. There are some menacing cues in the film, which I feel are washed out by too much sound. And I would have liked to see the balance just titch a little bit more in the favor of this, this score. It's not, it's not one of Jari's greatest scores. Uh, he won that year for mm-hmm. Dr. Zhivago, but I don't think it does get an excellent treatment in the film. And it kind of makes me wonder, why did Frankenheimer ask him to write one in the first place if he only wanted, you know, he could have done something more minimalist. I mean... It was washed out yeah. minimalist. I think it was kind of wasted, actually. There were there are some nice things in here. Like the last note that registers uh, in the epilogue or at the end of the, the... I don't know if you watch the film again. Like that last note at the end of the film, it takes you to your, your credit roll. That's like really dark.
and it really isolates him, Lancaster, walking away. It's almost like a death knoll right at the end of the film. Really strange, really interesting. Yeah. And at the beginning too, you know, mm. like that that really great montage of the titles going, the music is kicking off there. That, that's it like in between you don't get to hear a lot it's of true it. it's just you're it's right bombed out of the picture which makes me wonder mm-hmm. what's the point of having it in there is it formulaic you know i i feel like there's a bit of something i would have wanted there but i didn't take much off guys it's a journeyman went, uh, score it's a journeyman score yeah I guess that's, <laughs> that's true. Good point. uh i went for uh a, a nine on my atmosphere because okay. i guess i'm a little more attuned to the music stuff and that bothered me a little bit um well, that's fine. Right. The, the, the camera work in here is just so You don't need to apologize. Like, you're just never bored watching the movie. Even if even if the no, character performances no. aren't for everybody or the story is just kind of no, blase. No, exactly. Just be, you're just stuck where the camera's going. It, it's always doing something different. It's always doing something interesting. You know, like that shot where we're walking through Nazi it's headquarters so of and they're time. burning everything. And then you get von Vla- uh, von is it uh, is that where he comes in there von waldheim von comes yeah yeah that's right he comes in at there at the end and the camera me- meets up with him because he's on the opposite side of the room you know after the camera goes through it yeah and it's not a perpex- perspective shot but of whom you know really interesting camera work in this movie so those are some pretty high it scores is- for us guys Oh, very, yeah. yeah. And just to kind of hammer home my 10 out of 10, too, for atmosphere, just like the mise-en-scene in this film, I'm not talking about just like the, because this was filmed on location, so there's not a lot of Ooh. sets, but when you do get to go to a set in this film, like the, like just like the, the, the I guess the train yard, like the interior of the train yard, where I mentioned where Lancaster is working on the pieces, mm-hmm. uh, like mm-hmm. that little cafe that Papa Bull goes into with like yeah. the oh, bar cool. built That's in cool. with like the shacks, like, the I loved uh, Christine's Inn, like just that, that must have been a real place yeah. where, where they filmed in. It felt like such an it old, was, yeah. old yeah, like nineteenth so. century house, right? And uh, just mm-hmm. and how claustrophobic the camera was navigating it and, and whatnot. Yeah. So like all the set design and in terms of how the the armaments are portray- are shown, the tanks being used, the the vehicles being used, the cut of the uniforms, all of that historically accurate, you know. And then that's another thing. Also, was just like the how well the the set design the production design was on this film too and that's just not including the camera obviously yeah i don't know if this is considered atmosphere i just want to mention at the very beginning i really enjoyed the little um the i don't know what you the proper term is but sort of the the little uh note like sort of the the credits at the beginning uh, just sort of saying, like you know, we appreciate. Obviously, this is this goes out to the people that actually died and, and sacrificed themselves during this operation and all other. I I, I thought that was a it was, it, nice was it was yeah. very well written. I mean, you've seen these before in these type of films, but I I actually thought it was uh, it was actually really well done. I thought that was a really sort of good little opening number and, and kind of get you set. Yeah, yeah I was very intrigued. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice so, are, what's the final scores, Scott? What's the uh, what's the final uh, score I was for each of us in this uh, out of film? thirty? I was twenty-four out of thirty. Uh, That's very good. Josh, you're twenty-seven out of thirty, and Jeff, you're twenty-eight and a half out of thirty. So these are up there with our best, <laughs> if not our best scores for any non-bond I, film. Yeah, I'll have to check the scores for Quiller because I think Quiller was high up there as well. I think so. Yeah. 
I think this is possibly the highest score I've ever given anything mm-hmm. uh, in relation to Bond. It's really a surprise, but I'm delighted that I was able to unearth. <laughs> I was unable to unearth a oh, killer man. memorandum for Good this. Good choice. For this My year. God, yes. this is amazing. And we'll have to wait to see what Josh has got in store. So, uh, listeners, uh, ladies and gentlemen, everybody at home, uh, let us know your thoughts. If you've seen The Train by Burt Lancaster, uh, give us an email or hit us up on our Instagram at uh, mm. uh, bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com or uh, bbn underscore pod on Instagram. And, uh, yeah, let us know what you thought of this movie because we certainly enjoyed it and would certainly recommend it. But, gentlemen, our three non-bonds journey is not yet over. We have our third Bond host. Nope. Our third BBN host mm-hmm. is left. Josh, what are we going to watch next? Well, third is the operative word there. That's for sure. <laughs> the Third Man by Carol Reed, starring Joseph Cotton awesome. and Orson Welles. I am so excited, gentlemen, I'm excited because to see that. I haven't seen this film. And Joseph Cotton is one of my favorite actors. So delighted I've never with seen that it. choice. I'm delighted. excited. Oh, awesome. Yeah. We're going to Vienna. And uh, it'll be fun. It yeah, I'm very excited to see this. I've seen the trailer a couple times, and this looks... I'm very excited. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, look, everyone, uh, thanks thanks for joining us here today. Hope you've enjoyed uh, our blether through John Frankenheimer's 1964 train. It was a surprising <laughs> winner for us. Um, surprising because, you know, we'd never seen it. Not surprised... Or, I had never seen it. And Jeff had never seen it. And Josh... I never saw had it. Had never seen it. This is like, we've never seen this, and all three of us, you know, yeah, so there you go. (laughs) This is how good this movie was. I watched the the entire film again the next day. (laughs) Cool. So, yeah. Nice one. All right, well, we'll be back here on Bond by Number soon, and uh, before we get to Josh's three non-Bond, we've got a fun little uh, Bond celebration, 60th birthday celebration episode we'll uh, just tease here now, and... In about a week or so, we'll uh, we'll drop that one. So uh, that'll be a fun one for everybody. You can play at home with us on that. Getting back to one of our uh, little game-type shows. So thanks once again, guys. Uh, good effort here today. And take care out there, everybody. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir.